one another and our involvement in the life of the church. And now Paul will go on to talk about more implications. And depending on how you count them, I counted 23 some, uh, commands. And it's uh, kind of difficult to encapsulate it together. But nonetheless, let's hear what God says to us are the implications and the application of being transformed followers of Jesus. Verse 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How is this passage structured? If you look at verses 9 to 16, then it looks like Paul is talking about relationships inside the church. And if you look at verses 17 to 21, he's talking about attitudes and or relationships with those outside the church. And that would be nice and neat, except verse 14 doesn't fit. <clears throat> Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. So then if you move it a little bit, well then verses 15 and 16 won't fit. It seems some commentators throw up their hands in the air and say it's just impossible to bring this together into some cohesive whole. It's more like the Apostle Paul has taken a machine gun or a shotgun, maybe 24 gauge, kaboom, and has fired off all these commands. He's just randomly thinking of things to say. I don't think that. I think there is a structure to it. There is a theme running through it. It's a bit like a string of pearls, if you like. These 20-something commands are like the pearls, if you like, on the string. But there is a theme that goes through it. Let's see if we can discuss it together. Um, a couple of weeks ago on our Focus Sunday, I spoke about a formula that God seems to follow in the process of transforming people. <clears throat> that God is at work in our world, the work of God, and he uses the word of God to teach us about the Jesus and the gospel and our repentance and faith and response to him. Working of God plus the word of God. And then it's our response to that teaching. It's personal commitment plus other believers plus time and trials. That God is at work to transform people into the image of Jesus to bring us to maturity. This is not a formula which is, you know, um, ironclad and set in concrete, but it seems to be excuse me, a consistent thing that God works through. In fact, 
It's here in this very chapter. Personal commitment in the Word of God. It's personal commitment, verses 1 and 2. It's our relationship with other believers, not only, but especially verses uh, 3 to 8 in the church and having spiritual gifts. And one of the threads running through verses 9 to 22 are, in fact, time and trials. It has the assumption that it's going to be tough. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be times um, when not only will people be opposed to us, there'll be people who will upset us, and there'll even be times when we burn out, get weary, tire. Any one of these sorts of responses can be reflected in the assumptions of this particular passage. Once again, I commend this passage to you and I invite you to take it home, to read it carefully. One of the exercises I did, and this was certainly helpful for me, is I tried encapsulating each phrase by one word. So, for instance, the first one, verse 9, love must be sincere. So I wrote down the word genuine. That's what Paul means. Or it says that we are to hate what is evil. I wrote down the word holy. Or we're to cling to what is good. And I brilliantly and discerningly wrote down the word good. <laughs> Genuine, holy and good. And I went through that and I came up with a list of 23 qualities. Having done that, I then noticed something. <clears throat> Whoever put the verses in place, in many places, in some places in the scriptures, they are in exactly the wrong spot. But the, whoever put the verses in place in this particular passage, I think, got it exactly right. And if you look at each verse, I think each verse can be encapsulated by a truth. So, for instance, if I stick with that one, it might be a little bit confusing at the beginning, but we'll try. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. He's talking about primarily our relationship and attitude to God. Usually when I read this passage, I've always read love must be sincere. It's talking about my love for other people, that love. But what if? It's quite possible. And Paul's not, not just talking about that. He's really talking about our love for God. It doesn't, it's not exclusive, of course. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. They go together. But if the focus is more on the former, if Paul means let your love for God be sincere, without hypocrisy, without pretense, without pre, um, putting on a mask and going through the motions... Your love for God is to be sincere and real and genuine. Then likewise, you will hate what is evil and you're to cling to what is good. So it's quite possible in verse 9, he's talking about us primarily loving God. The other bit will come in in a moment. Verse 10, we are to be devoted to one another in love, honouring one another above ourselves. He's talking about God's people. So now he's talking about not just loving God, but now... That overflows into our relationship with God's people. Verse 11, verse 11 has three couplets to it. Uh, never be lacking in zeal. Be fervent in, 
keep yourself spiritual fervour and serving the Lord. It's talking about our service, to be fired up and to be passionate, serving God. Or verse 12, these three often go together. Be joyful in the hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When you get into difficulties, it's a matter of trusting God. Anyway, you can continue to work that through when I commend it to you. It might give you some clarity and some insight. So what are we going to do? Well, the only way that I can deal with this passage primarily is to work my way through it, you know, phrase by phrase, line by line, and then at the end, close in prayer. It's going to be difficult to hold these things together. So my direction for you this morning and my advice is two things. One, this passage has the amazing ability to increase our levels of guilt because we all fall short. None of us are doing this, all of this. Some of it we might be doing well in. Or you might be doing well in some bits and I might be doing well in different bits, but none of us are doing all of it extremely well. So all this can do is, if it convicts us, terrific. But the preacher has to be careful. He just doesn't say, be devoted to prayer. You need to pray more. And you just raise people's guilt. That doesn't motivate and it doesn't help. So this passage has that ability to raise our sense of, oh, I fall short. Well, if it does do that, then do what is the appropriate Christian response. Cast yourself upon God. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his enabling and strength. Humble yourself before him. That's an appropriate response. The second thing, and the opposite of increasing guilt for us, is actually this can become like a checklist. As I go through this, and some of it I'm going to go pretty quickly through, and some of it I'm going to linger over. As you go through this, it's it's like a doctor taking your vital statistics. How's that going for you? No, that's an area I've got to work on. That's a definite weakness. No, that's okay. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at on that or whatever. Use it as a spiritual checklist to see how you're traveling on the path towards maturity. So with that in, in mind, let me pray quickly and then let's work our way through this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every part of your word is important and every part of your word is valuable. And Lord, this is one part of your word which seems to be clear, hence part of the difficulty for us. We can't wriggle our way out of it. So I pray that you might not just clarify and increase our understanding, but that you would also work in our hearts and give us the desire that you would motivate us, that you would move in us, that we wouldn't just talk the talk, but that we'd actually be doing these things, improving and growing to be more like Jesus. Could you help us please in that? We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love must be sincere. Now, as I've already indicated, I think primarily I would understand that love for God. But that's, I acknowledge, is perhaps not the most natural or the first impulse to read it that way. Sincere in the English word, comes from a Latin word, two words, sincera, which means without wax. In the ancient world, they used to make very expensive porcelain pots, and in the process of baking it, sometimes they would crack. And the process was so long and so expensive that crooked merchants would take some wax and they would would coat it over where the crack was and then paint over it, and you couldn't tell by just simply looking at it. 
But the wise buyer would take that very delicate porcelain vase or cup or goblet and he would hold it up to the sunlight. And the sunlight, of course, would come through and you would then discern that there was a crack. And Paul is saying, let your love be without that covering, without that pretense. That's the English word, sincere. And it's a good translation, good word. The actual Greek word that Paul uses is, let your love be without hypocrisy. And a Hippocrates, a Hippocrate, was a person who was an actor in the ancient world. And back then, not like for us, spoiled by modern cinematography, back then it was all live theatre. And sometimes it was limited characters, often just male. And so they would have different masks for different characters. And then if they were this character, they'd have this mask on. Then if they were this character, they'd put this mask on. That's a Hippocrate. He's an actor. He's got a mask on. He's pretending to be somebody else, the character. And in theatre, that's acceptable, but in life, it's not. Don't put a mask on. Don't pretend to be something you ain't. Make sense? Be real. Be genuine. Be true. Not pretending. Not play acting. That's the word that Paul uses. Our love for God and love for people. Sincere. Genuine not phoning. And then flowing out of that, whether it is, in fact, simply primarily love for God, but even if it overflows into loving one another, then it means both with God and with other people, we will do these two things. We will hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We need to be discerning in our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. We are not to endorse evil, We're not to align ourselves with it, we're not to encourage it, we're not to support it. Big ask. That's what it means. We are to hate evil. Hate it. To recoil from it. To have God's attitude towards it. So now in the second application, if it's love for what other people, if that other person is involved in something which is bad or which is evil then we are not to modelly coddle them. We're not to be um, condoning, endorsing their, that which is evil in them. Does that make sense? We're not to be harsh and judgmental either, but we are to be loving. And love means that you will hate evil. That you'll love the person, but you won't endorse or support or encourage whatever evil they're involved in or are doing. You need to be discerning. What does God think about that? And take his attitude, not to be indifferent to it. And of course, that all begins up here in the mind, having a renewed process of values and outlook on that which is right and helpful or that which is harmful. And we certainly have a spiritual enemy who will want to loosen our grip on our commitment to that which is right. And that he will try to discourage us from being a loving genuinely loving person towards another who is involved in something which is evil. That he'll try, he'll try to get us to be, um, to be indifferent, to back off, to don't be judgmental. Those sorts of words or phrases will come. You need to be more accepting. What we have to do, and this is the hard bit, what we have to do is to communicate that we love, genuinely care about the person, we love them, but we think that what they're doing is wrong, is harmful, and is evil. 
That's the balance. Jesus had the amazing ability to be able to do it. Prostitutes and tax collectors and people involved in all sorts of wrong things were attracted to him because somehow he accepted and loved them at the same time without compromising his standards of what they were doing was wrong. It's finding that balance. And as we become more like him, then we might experience that as well. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Cling to what is good. Let's move on. Uh, Verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another, honour one another above yourselves. Relatively straightforward. Again, you ask the question, how are you doing on this? How are you going in your relationships with one another? This is certainly a one another statement. This is certainly Christian to Christian. This is in-house. This is the church of God to be devoted to one another. Loyal, faithful, committed, devoted. And to honour one another. Paul means to go ahead of them, to be the first, to lead the way in affirming, in encouraging, in setting the example. Not sitting around waiting for people to do it to you. They don't do it to me, so I'm not doing it to them. No, 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 other way. Whether they do it or not, the command is that we are to do that. We are to honour one another. Encourage, support, affirm, set the example, give preference to one another. How are you doing in your relationships with your brothers and sisters? Love must be sincere. So it's not simply being polite. It is that, but it's more than that. It's to be genuine. There is to be a love towards our brothers and sisters. Well, there are some people I just don't like. Yeah, I know. It's true, isn't it? We're not told to like them. told to love them. Now, love certainly is an action and it's behaviour. But sociologists would demonstrate that if you act and behave lovingly and caringly towards a person you do not like, but you consistently adopt that attitude, you might begin through gritted teeth, I will do this, but eventually sociologists will say your feelings will follow your actions. It's interesting. Feelings do follow actions. Our Western world tends to focus on feelings when they're not leading the way and we let them lead the way and we shouldn't. Our brain, our mind, the way we think, our values leads the way and our feelings will follow those choices. That's the biblical way. How are you doing on that? Verse 11, moving on. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour. Serving the Lord. Does that describe you? Or have you begun to lag a little bit, back off, grown a bit weary. It's actually a strong and not a nice word that the Apostle Paul is using here when he says never um, be lagging, be, uh, never be lacking in zeal. He's basically saying don't be lazy. It's pretty direct. It's the, the sluggard of Proverbs that he's referring to. It's the servant, the three servants, and to the third servant, Jesus gave one talent, you know, five, two, and one, or whatever the numbers were. What did this guy do with it? Nothing. Buried it. Well, it's what Paul's addressing. Don't do that. Don't bury what God has given you. Rather, 
Um, be zealous, be fervent, not lukewarm, but passionate, boiling inside, have a burning desire to want to please God, do God's will and advance his glory. Now, for some of us, you probably need your arm twisted a little bit to motivate you to get into ministry, to get into serving. Well, that's what Paul's saying. Don't be like that. If there's an opportunity to serve, take the opportunity to serve. Be zealous. Be passionate. Have a go. Commit yourself. Opposite of that, there are some of you who do that. You're passionate and you're having a go, and in fact, you're so busy, you're having so many goes, what you need to do is to back off on some of them and to focus your energy so that you can be more diligent and more effective. There's plenty of opportunities to serve in the life of our church. Pick one. Look at the bulletin that there will be often be ads in there about people needing some help for something else. Here is an easy one. And there are two things you can do. Let's talk about mops. Meets on a Wednesday, every second Wednesday. Outreach to mums having some adult time so the kids are looked after. We need help to look after the kids, as probably as well as help to come alongside the parents. There is something like about a dozen parent mums can't come. Want to come, can't come, because we don't have enough helpers. There's a ratio you've got to meet and all that stuff. That's on a Wednesday, Wednesday morning. Get to look after darling little sinful creatures. <laughs> uh, children. opportunity don't feel guilty if oh, I don't want to go after kids well that's okay but for some of you it will be I could do that I wouldn't mind doing that I don't want to do it by myself I need help there's something you can do and maybe for you there's a tug at the heart you say gee I'd like to do that but I can't because I'm either at work or because I don't have the physical stamina or ability to be able to do that now, but I really have a heart for that, what you can do is to say to the leaders, I'm going to be praying for you. When Mops is on, I'll be praying. That's how I can serve. I can't do that. I'd like to, but I can't, but I can do this. That's just one example, and we could go through the ministries of our church and so on. And Paul is saying, not lagging behind, be zealous, be fervent in spirit. Not letting your arm twisted, not overcommitted, but focused. And it's all about serving the Lord. That's the point of verse 11, serving him. In all that we do, we are serving him. Yeah, but I work full time. I work 50 hours a week or 50 hours plus, and you put travel on your words now, 60 hours. Yeah, well, have the attitude as a believer, a follower of Jesus, that your 60 hours at work is you serving the Lord. You're serving him in that environment. Let all that you do, whatever you say, do it as to him. Yeah, you have an employer, you have a boss or whatever, and you have people that you're accountable to, and all that's appropriate and helpful. But ultimately, you're serving him. Have that attitude. Serve him there. That's your frontline mission, to serve him in that context, to live the life consistently. And, but we also have spiritual gifts, and so there is a place where we need to exercise that. And that's usually, not only, but usually in the life of this body. So it's doing something at work, but it's also doing something in the church. Serving him. We're all called to serve. No exceptions. We're not serving ourselves, and ultimately we're not serving people. Ultimately, we are serving him.
In the process of serving people, we are serving him. So if we have that attitude, if we have that right, then in the process of using our gifts and serving others and them not being appreciative or them not being affirming or them not being encouraging, well, I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because I'm serving him and he will reward me. He will affirm. That's the ideal, isn't it? But our emotions get caught up in it and we get hurt we get discouraged and we get weary and we back off and I'm not doing it anymore. Well, that's a disobedience to what this passage is saying. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Zealous, fervent, serving him. Verse 12. Oh, I could take a long time on this verse. I spent most time on this verse. Let me try to encapsulate it pretty quickly for you. Verse 12 says that we are to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. As you read through the New Testament, you will often find those three linked together in many, many passages, over a dozen, because of the middle bit. We end up in trouble. We end up in affliction. Something happens which is hurtful or harmful. There's a difficulty which is happening. And then Scripture tells us that we are to be patient in it persevere through it how do we do that well he tells us to be joyful in hope and to be faithful in prayer helps us to endure the difficulty like i said these three often go together some people mistakenly have the attitude and i hope you don't but we can slip into it so easily the mistaken attitude is i thought god was supposed to protect me from all this stuff I didn't think this was supposed to happen to me. I'm obedient as best I can be. I love God. I'm serving him, giving faithfully. I'm reading his word. I'm praying, doing everything I know is possibly right. How could things possibly be going wrong? This isn't right. That's a wrong attitude. <clears throat> because God actually uses not just our personal commitment, not just other believers, but he uses time and trials to grow us. He allows it and sometimes he sends it. So the question is not, how could this possibly be happening to me? The question is, Lord, what are you wanting to grow in me? We have to prepare ourselves for these things. How do we persevere through it? Well, through our hope. It's to remind, again, our brain, our thinking. It's, what has God done for me? Well, he's died on the cross, he's redeemed me, forgiven my sins, and I now have eternal life. I have a place in heaven. That's God's plan, that's where I'm going. That hope, as real as that becomes for me, will produce joy in me not happiness joy an inner deep calm the apostle paul can talk about being sorrowful yet rejoicing there's a mixture this joy is not an emotion it's a focus it's a deep inner sense of contentment and trust joyful in hope as bad as this world gets jesus is coming Biblical joy is not based on personality or temperament. It's not a matter of happy circumstances, nor is it a superficial smile. Just smiling. Verse 15 will go on to tell us that there'll be times of weeping. So it's not the superficial thing. This joy comes, as I said, out of hope. God's plan for our future, his promises to us. We are to be patient in affliction. I told you a couple of weeks ago about um, the caterpillar. If we revisit the little caterpillar, 
Come the autumn, he will take himself and make for himself his own little cocoon and he'll make a door and he'll shut it and he'll go to sleep for the winter. In the springtime, he'll awaken and then will begin a struggle. He will push and pull and wriggle and he will then collapse exhausted. Only to do it again, he'll push, pull and and try to get out and fall exhausted. And that process will repeat itself for quite a while. If you were to watch that happening... And you actually thought, oh, a kind, loving thing to do would be to actually help the little caterpillar get out of the cocoon. Took some tweezers and you very carefully pried open the door and pulled back the cocoon. Then he wouldn't emerge from that a beautiful butterfly. He would emerge from that a weakened, ill-formed creature. You see, it's actually the process of struggling, of pushing and of pulling and of wriggling, time and trials that actually strengthens in the butterfly his wings, that gives him the strength to be able to fly. The struggle matures him to achieve the purpose. God uses struggles, afflictions, to grow us. Get me out of this. I want to grow you. I want to change your focus from yourself and your comfort onto trusting me, trusting God, patient in affliction devoted to prayer there's a the guilt tripper one and I think all the apostle Paul means as I read through the New Testament he's not saying that we should be legalistic that we should commit ourselves to praying an hour a day two hours a day three hours a day did I do it that's just legalism he's talking about a relationship and an attitude let per let prayer permeate your life devoted to prayer Issue comes up, I pray. Got an issue I can't figure out, I pray. Something joyful, happy happens, I pray. Let per permeate all that you do. Can't speak proper. <laughs> but pray proper. That makes sense. Don't just confine prayer to a segment of your life. If you have a daily time alone with God in the morning, then that's terrific. Keep doing that. But don't leave it there. Don't just confine prayer to saying grace before a meal or praying for the kids before they get into bed. Let it permeate your existence. Turn your mind and your thoughts and your heart to God daily, throughout the day. Be devoted to prayer. That's what he's saying. And if you're in the midst of trials, it's that clear understanding of the hope that will give you joy in the midst of trials, that inner contentment and peace. And it's prayer that you'll be driven to. And of course, prayer for deliverance. Prayer for what am I supposed to get out of this? Well, let me hasten to a conclusion. Verse 13, he goes on to deliver us from greed, being generous and hospitable. One quote. God prospers us, not just to raise our standard of living. God prospers us, not just to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. God prospers you to bless you and he wants you to enjoy it. But he's not doing it just so that you'll be better off and you'll be comfortable. He wants that. But he also wants you to be growing to maturity to be able to give more. God prospers me not just to raise my standard of living but to raise my standard of giving. So it's being delivered from greed. Sharing with Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
He then goes on to talk about pretty much when tough time comes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And when he says bless, he doesn't mean bless them. He means pray for them. Do exactly what Jesus says. Luke 6, 27 to 28, he says, love your enemies. That's tough. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If you follow Jesus, you will have enemies, you will have people who hate you, you will have people who will curse you. And that's not meaning they'll swear at you. It means that they'll be summoning their spiritual powers to affect you. And there'll be people who will mistreat you. What does Jesus say? Love them, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. It's an alternate worldview, isn't it? Being transformed. What helps me in the process of doing that? Well, if I remember that God has been gracious to me when I am a sinner, that God continues to be gracious to me even now when I sin, and if I remember that they are still in Satan's kingdom under darkness and his deception, that will help me to bless and not to ask God to curse them. You see, it's all about self being delivered of self. If I'm going to bless those who persecute me, then I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about him or her and their eternal welfare. They're outside of Christ. They need Jesus and so on. He goes on to the same truth. And he comes back to that particular one down to verse 17 to 21. What do you do when people do, in fact, do shocking things to you? Don't repay anyone for evil. Don't repay. That's what he says. When you've been wronged, do the right thing. Trust God. Let him work it out. Wrong response, pay back retaliation. Right response, bless them. Work for peace. Pray for them to come to know Jesus. Be kind towards them, but leave it to God to work out. It's a tall list, isn't it? But that's what Jesus, God, is at work in us to achieve all of those things. And we've really skated across the surface this morning. I'm going to um, lead you in a prayer. And just before I do that, I'm going to ask you to bow. I'm going to read you my 23 qualities that I came up with as I read the verses. As you hear them, maybe the Spirit of God and your heart might grab a hold of some of them. We are to be genuine, holy and good. We're to be loyal to one another. Affirming, zealous, fervent, and serving. We are to be hopeful, patient, and prayerful. To be generous and hospitable. We are to be blessing others, empathizing with others, harmonious and humble. We're to be submissive, careful, peaceful, waiting, caring, and overcoming. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard. Now help us to do business with what we've heard. Help us to think through, to evaluate and to respond in ways that please you. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are committed to growing us to maturity in Jesus. 
and that we find ourselves in a cocoon and there's a struggle. And you're not going to deliver us from the struggle until we reach maturity, until we reach your purpose. So Lord, deliver us from being simply physical. Help us to be spiritual. Deliver us from bound to the earth. Help us to be heavenly, bound to the skies. Deliver us, Lord, from ourselves and help us to be fully committed to Jesus. Live in us, work through us. And do we pray it now as we go into the days of this week uh, that we'll go deliberately, intentionally with you, that we're serving you each and every day. So, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Grant to us your grace, mercy and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Have a good week, everybody. Parents, you need, if you haven't gone already, you need to go grab your little children. And if you would like to help out with mops, either come and see me or see Joe or see Rebecca at the end of the service. And ladies, don't forget, there are people looking for you to sign up for. God bless everybody.